Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with, uh, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kind of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and sisters in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And would you stay standing just for one more moment? I do it too every time. Some of you are just like, I know what's going on. <laughs> now may we be good hearers and better doers. May we love Jesus deeply. May we trust what Jesus says. And may we follow Jesus well. You may be seated. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, there. Beautiful. Oh, like it's Labor Day weekend. You're like, I'm getting a free day tomorrow. So keep it quick. All right. <laughs> Let me take you back to uh, my Friday. I was working on this sermon trying to come up with kind of a silly way to contextualize the end of Ephesians, right? So I asked Yinka if she could remember a somewhat funny situation where I've said something that surprised her. Well, without hesitation, she looked at me dead in the eye, and in her beautiful, like, Nigerian-British accent she, that I, I'm not even going to try to imitate, she said these words. She said, no, you haven't really said things that surprise me. I more find a number of things that you do fun to laugh at. So she chuckled and walked away, closed the door. That was it. <laughs> Have you ever had a conversation go differently than you expected? Have you ever had a talk end a little bit on a surprising note? Paul wrote this pastoral letter to followers of Jesus in Ephesus. Now think of it like a conversation or a sermon. In it, he preached that these people, that this family, these followers of Jesus have been adopted into the family of God. They're recipients of an inheritance. They're sealed with the spirit. They've been rescued from having to live under the tyranny of the flesh. They've been freed from the power of the world. They're seated with Christ above principalities, powers, rulers, and the demonic. Some pretty good stuff, okay. Created for good works 
brought into a whole new family of Jew, Gentile, male, female, rich, and poor, called to live out vocation with Jesus, given a whole new way of being human, filled by the Spirit, and invited to be like Jesus by becoming people who lovingly submit to one another. This is who the people of God are. This is who we are. Now, imagine hearing all of what we've talked about over the past months. I did the math, it's 417 minutes of teaching in the past months. Now imagine hearing all of that in just one sitting. But instead of the sermon ending with a, now would you stand with me, come Holy Spirit, fade in the keyboard. The pastor says something pretty surprising. Paul ends this sermon by basically saying, we're at war. And with those words, a myriad of responses likely rose up. Some feel excited. Yes, let's do this. Like just ready to charge hell with a squirt gun, you know? Others, they feel skeptical. Wait, 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 wait. War? What are you talking about? And some probably fearful. Yeah, no, no, no. Bruh, I did not sign up for this. Paul seems to end this sermon not with a song or a testimony or a ministry response, but with a battle cry. So now let's read it out loud together and just humor me. I know it's not. Humor me. It'll be on the screen. Read it with like some bravado. Okay, here we go. Take your, brav, brav, oh yeah, okay, some, some, together, here we go. Take your stand against the devil's schemes, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In short, we are are in a fight. We're in a struggle and we have an enemy, the ruler of the authority of the air, the Satan, the devil, the accuser, the slanderer. He's a deceiver, a liar, a thief, and a murderer. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy. He's the antagonist of God's story and he's after you because you bear God's image. He hates us because he hates God. There is the Satan and then there is a host of his foes. Or there's a host of foes, sorry, not his foes. They are the rulers, the authorities, the powers, spiritual forces of evil. They're the forces behind the chaos in our world. They're the problem behind the problem. Now, if the scripture is telling the truth, then what's happening in our city isn't just about governance, politics, chaos, racism, anger, angst, trauma, or you name it. There is a power or a force animating it and adding fuel to the fire, the demonic. Paul is naming the enemy but the enemy is not people. Both Jesus and Paul were clear that the enemy wasn't Rome, even though they were both eventually killed by Rome, because people are never the enemy. Our city is never the enemy. Gavin, he reminded me of this. He said, after spending a long time talking about various relationships, Paul is intentional about who the enemy is. It's as if he's saying being in relationships is hard. So hard that we're tempted to believe Satan's lie, that people are our enemy. Refuse that lie. People are not, nor will they ever be the enemy. Your real enemy is the devil and the demonic, which I know can be hard for some of us to believe, right? The secular worldview wants us to trust that everything in our world has a natural cause. The problems are psychological or educational or social or familial. So if we just get people educated, if we just change the system, if we just create the technology, if we just get the funding, if we just get everyone in therapy, if we just get society on the same page, then the world will be fixed. But didn't the 20th century disprove that? 
Like, how is it that we had more education, more access, more resources, culture, technology, and progress, and also have the most bloodshed the world has ever seen? What about the 21st century? Would you say that the last 20 years, or even just the last two years, with all of our progress, has made our society better? Shouldn't crime, greed, racism, violence, angst, depression, poverty, abuse, or you name it, shouldn't it have gone down by now? Secularism claims that evil can't be supernatural, but does that actually hold up to the human experience of evil? It feels like it's so much more than this. To borrow from Tim Keller's work, a problem with secularism's view on evil is that it's way too simplistic. Secularism trusts that everything is natural. Everything can be figured out by our resources and by our categories. It actually claims that everything is simple. Yet I think we intuitively know that our world's issues, they're complex. Maybe secularism's categories haven't fixed evil because they're too simplistic. Also, that view is honestly just culturally narrow. Most cultures throughout human history, and I've said it like three times this summer, most cultures throughout human history have had a framework of supernatural good and evil that the West, honestly, it shouldn't close its ears to. So as Shakespeare once said in Hamlet, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. The scriptures view that, the, that there is supernatural and spiritual evil actually makes better sense of the world and of human history. It recognized the multidimensionality and complexity of our problems. It's not to say, and hear me, it's not to say that there aren't natural factors. I'm not saying therapy or systems or education, socioeconomics and technology are bad or they're not helpful. That is not what I'm saying. I'm also not saying that people who hold a secular worldview are the problem. I'm saying that secularism's view of the solution for evil may not be worth trusting. Andrew Delvanco, who was a self-described secular liberal from Columbia University, this is what he penned. A gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. Secularism claims that there isn't supernatural evil, yet at the same time hasn't been able to fully deal with the evil in the world, which just sounds like Warfare 101. If you underestimate the enemy, you won't be able to be even begin to fight. As Sun Tzu put it in The Art of War, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. Paul is claiming that unless you understand the reality of spiritual evil, you will never be able to stand. You won't be able to deal with the real problem. We are at war. We have an enemy who is going after who we are becoming. And remember, this isn't just about you as an individual. The enemy is also going after us as a people. Just think about like the last year of our church and all that we've um, like, been experiencing and becoming. Transformation, growth, healing, Maturity, kids like running and dancing and worship, walking through suffering and hardship and grief together, new expressions of joy, answered prayers, miracles, faith, boldness, people coming into the kingdom, a wild stirring in our church for repentance and holiness. Have anyone else seen it too? Have you seen it and felt it? Have you been feeling what God is up to in this community? We're seeing unity in the church of Portland. We're seeing glimpses of our becoming more alive in Christ, glimpses of our maturing. We're seeing expressions of the kingdom come out of our city and bless the world. 
I mean, the number of people who move to Portland to be a part of what God is doing is insane. We're starting to take new spiritual authority for our city, and we're really sensing and beginning to step in Jesus's mission and into the margins. We want more of what God is up to in each of us and in us as a people and in Portland. There's no way of saying it better than God is on the move. He is. Like, I can feel it. I can see it, and I know you can too. And that, that is what the enemy is fighting against. There has been pushback and there will be pushback. The theologian Tom White put it in a way that sounds a lot like Portland to me. In a city, region, or mission field where kingdom workers labor for unity, engage in transformational prayer, and work collaboratively for kingdom impact, the enemy will press back. This may be direct supernatural resistance or hassle from local institutions. Often it's a combination of both. This, I believe, is the struggle, literally the hand-to-hand wrestling Paul warns about. So maybe some of what you've been experiencing, we've been experiencing, has been the enemy. It hasn't just been natural. It's pushback. The enemy is going to fight against what God is doing. And sure, like we might have some excitement or resolve now, but I'm curious about longevity. Like, what about 5, 10, 20, 50 years from now? What about people who are not even alive right now, but will be in this room or in this city? There is a fight, and it's long, and it's worth it. But if the scripture is right, then we are in over our heads unless there is help. Verse 10. Finally, here are the things that it all comes down to. All of Ephesians comes down to this. Finally, be strong in the Lord Jesus and in his mighty power. We need to be strengthened, but strength is received. Be strong in Jesus and his power. You need strength for the battle. You cannot do it on your own resources. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God. And I know like who hasn't seen like the flannel graph or like sang the song with the Lord's Yes, sir. You know, like the whole, yeah, some of y'all. Oh, yeah, you knew that, yes, sir, Clive. Y'all were with me. (laughs) Listen, Paul is saying, take hold, seize, grasp, or receive God's armor. The emphasis word being full. Put on the full armor. In other words, don't miss a thing. Don't leave a piece out. The enemy has schemes and methods of attack. He's been playing the game for a long time and knows what he's up to. So Paul instructs the church to armor up. Armor up so that you might be able to stand your ground. Now, Paul actually isn't making up like a new analogy that's being clever for the church. He's riffing off of Isaiah 11, 49, 52, 55, and 59. When Yahweh and his Messiah see that there is sin, decreation, and a lack of justice in the world, so they put on armor and get to work to set things right. The church is to put on what God and his Messiah wear into battle. God is so loving that he gives people his own armor. So what does Paul say that this armor is made of? Verse 14, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Now I've asked Bethany to come model each piece of armor. I'm kidding, but (laughs) I know you would though. If I did, she'd be ready. The enemy's weapon of choice, their lies, slander, accusation, condemnation, guilt, shame, fear, and deceit. So it makes sense that the first piece of armor that God gives his people is truth. The thing that secures everything else is truth. Truth about who God is, about who we are, how the world really works, who the enemy is, and how we fight. We need to wear truth. That's our foundation. Then stand firm with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Some scholars translate the word here as justice instead of righteousness. 
So what guards your vital organs is the thing that is central to the heart of God, justice. Now that'll preach. Like we could just end there. Justice. Guard your with justice. Verse 15, stand with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Ephesus is a city in the Roman Empire, and the Ephesians were used to seeing Roman soldiers in the streets, which, by the way, makes the New Testament stand on nonviolence really provocative. Now, a number of historians note that the attention given to soldiers' boots accounted for Rome's ability to conquer. Um, if any of you like play sport, anyone play sports? I know our church normally doesn't do sport analogies, but anybody? Yes? Okay. Sports. <laughs> Sports are like you go hiking. There, that's probably more. <laughs> Play sports or go hiking. You know that having the right shoes or like the right foundation, it matters. Um, y'all know Hakeem in our church, right? Like Hakeem, yeah. So, okay, a few weeks ago, um, Hakeem and I, we were playing basketball and I crossed him up good. And he was upset about it. He was upset about it. And he's, because it was actually kind of embarrassing for him. I'm like, sorry, bro. It's a little embarrassing. <laughs> He was upset about it, and then he just kept blaming me. He's like, man, I wasn't wearing the right shoes, man. I'm from Philly. Like, oh, I didn't have the right shoes. I'm just... <laughs> He's one of my best friends, and I'm like, I get to take a shot at him today. By the way, that didn't actually happen, but the point is still real. <laughs> the point's real. Our shoes or our foundation, they impact how we play the game. Verse 16, I did not expect that to be that funny, actually. <laughs> wow. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, Roman shields would be covered in leather and sometimes wetted so they could extinguish fiery arrows that were being shot. Then a Roman legion would stand against the enemy with the front row holding their shields forward and the other, shield, other soldiers holding their shields above. This formation made their army virtually in, um, invulnerable to arrows. Some scholars note that some Roman soldiers' shields didn't cover their whole body, though. Interesting. They would be longer on one side and shorter on the other, which would force the soldiers to stand close together. A soldier's defense was actually connected to those around them. You with me? This suggests to me that a defensive strategy for God's people is a community staying tightly knit together and staying tightly knit together in faith. Faith is the shield, which makes sense since the enemy's main weapon is slander, accusation, lies, and deception. The protection against that attack is faith, or what we often talk about is trust. The enemy is always working to erode trust because trust is the foundation for relationship and for community. Think about Eve and Adam in the garden. The enemy didn't say, go commit this sin. The enemy whispered subtle deceptions. Did God really say? And God is holding out on you, or you'll be better off if you take for yourself. The enemy didn't tell Eve to sin. He deceived her to no longer trust. And isn't that one of the main temptations that we experience in the family of God? The deceptions, they're so subtle, right? Like, Will God really care for you? Will he actually be with you? How can he be loving if, are you sure you can trust his people again? Eroding trust and relationship with God or his people is the tactic of the enemy. So wouldn't it be in the mind of God to protect his people by calling them to get in close together and support each other in their trusting God? I found that trusting God is actually more so a communal endeavor than just an individual. There will be seasons when I need your help. Like, I need you to help me trust God. And there's going to be seasons that you need my help to trust. We need to spur on one another in trust and keep 
on using faith as a shield together knit. It's like that song says, uh, just call on me, brother, when you need a hand. Sing it. We all need somebody to lean on. I just might have a problem that you understand. We all need somebody to lean. Sing that chorus. Lean on me. Hey. But when you're not strong, and I'll be your friend, I'll help you for it won't be long till I'm gonna need somebody to lean on. Verse 17. <laughs> Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So the head is covered by salvation that's received. It's God's gift, his generosity, his healing, his restoring, his activity. That is what protects your head. Then here's your weapon, the word of God. Now for many, the phrase word of God has become a shorthand for the Bible and for good reason. But N.T. Wright comments this. The word in question is clearly the same as Ephesians 5.26. That is the word of the gospel through which God accomplishes his word, cleansing his, his powerful cleansing work in people's hearts and lives. In the New Testament, the word of God is typically referring to the announcement of the gospel, the declaration that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There is a new king and a new Lord, Jesus, the Messiah, who is crucified, buried, raised, and is coming again. The word of God is the weapon. Now remember at the end of scripture when John has a revelation of Jesus? John sees Jesus coming. His robes are bloody with his own blood before the battle has even started. And he has a sword, but the sword isn't in his hand. It's in his mouth. Jesus comes into battle with a message, a proclamation, an announcement of a new king. Truth, justice, the gospel of peace, faith, and the word of God. That is the armor. That is how we, the body, not just individuals, are to be clothed for the fight. Yet, even still, the point of getting the armor on isn't to talk about wearing armor. That would be so stupid. Like, look, look what I'm wearing. No, that's not the point. The point of the armor is so that you can stand. That's where Paul's been leading this whole letter to. Think about everything we've talked about for the past weeks. Everything leads to this, finally, stand. He wants the church to stand. Turn to somebody and just, like, tell them, stand. Stand. Turn to the person, the other person you ignored. Tell them, you too, stand. <laughs> this sermon has had a progression. Did you catch it? Paul starts the letter helping us see that we are seated with Christ above principalities, powers, and rulers. Then he calls us to walk no longer as the world, but as the new humanity. Then at the end of the letter, he commissions us to stand. Sit, walk, stand. The Chinese church leader, Watchman Nee, sums it up well when he says, Christian experience begins with sitting and leads to walking, but it does not end with these. Every Christian must learn also to stand. Each one of us must be prepared for the conflict. We must know how to sit with Christ in heavenly places, and we must know how to walk worthy of him down here, but we must also know how to stand before the foe. Sit, walk, then stand. Stand is the position of defense. Remember, this is armor. It's by nature defensive. It's protection against an attack because an attack is coming. But don't get worked up. Just stand your ground. Even though there's a sword, Paul actually never says actually to fight or attack. 
Jesus does the fighting. Jesus wins the battle. We aren't in these streets like chasing down the enemy. It would actually be the deception of the enemy for us to think that the victory is incomplete and we need to attack. It would also be a trick of the enemy to get us to retreat because the armor is all on the front of the body. The two ways we become vulnerable is by fighting when the war isn't ours to fight or by retreating, which we were never meant to do. Four times Paul says it. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Verse 13 to 14, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And, ha- and after you have done everything to stand, stand firm. I might be making a stretch here, but I think Paul wants us to stand. Now, have you ever been reading the scripture and you go to a passage you've like read a dozen times before and then something like it grabs you in a whole new way and it's like you've never even read the scripture before. Like it comes, anyone have that experience before? Yeah, studying the armor of God, it honestly was not that for me. (laughs) Not even being funny, I've been like racking my brain all week. I'm like, for weeks, I've just been like trying to look for some sort of insight that was like paradigm breaking or deeply stirring. And I really felt like I was hitting a wall over and over and over, which was honestly not a fun feeling when you're getting ready to preach. Then a few nights ago, a question began to bother me. Why did Paul end his sermon this way? Doesn't it seem a little odd? Like after everything he said, why would his final remark be stamped? Don't lose your ground. I've been racking my brain about it for like days. I think that Ephesus must have been one of the hardest places for the church to be stationed. This is a city where Rome had a tight grip, but not just Rome, so did the principalities and powers. This is a major port city, a large metropolis. It was renowned in its world. It was wealthy and was a center for learning. It was a city known for its culture, art, and architecture. It had a plethora of gods and spiritualities. It had wild practices around sexuality, sexuality, and it could get carried away with the drinking, parties, and pleasure. Does this sound familiar? Acts 19 tells us that this city is where all the Jews and Greeks heard the word of the Lord, where God did like crazy miracles, like healing people through handkerchiefs and aprons that touched Paul. This is the city where people were, people were freed from evil spirits and where people were confessing sin and burning sorcery books. This is the city where the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. This is the city where the kingdom of darkness was confronted by the kingdom of light. This is the city where Jesus began to take ground. This is the city where as Bethany said, a riot became the church. Ephesus is the city where if God moved there, he could move anywhere. Sound familiar? But the one thing you don't see today in or around Ephesus is an active church. If there is one, it's underground. And that's wild since by the early second century, Christian writers were holding up Ephesus as a great example of Christian faith, life, and witness. For several centuries, it held a position of preeminence, and one of the great fifth century church councils was held there. But virtually nothing today. Which at first probably sounds like an awkward way to end a whole series on Ephesians. But maybe it's fitting. Remember the warning that Jesus gave to this church just a few years later? I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you, Ephesians. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. 
If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. This is a church who did the good works. They worked hard and persevered. They didn't tolerate wickedness. They watched closely for people teaching things that were out of orthodoxy. They even endured hardship for Jesus and didn't grow weary, yet they lost their first love. They either lost their first love for God or his people or his mission. Somewhere along the way, they lost their first love. And it's possible that in a city so similar to Ephesus, we could be the same. Which is why I find Paul's final instructions so compelling. I've always missed it when I read Ephesians. Do you remember the last thing Paul said to do? He ends this sermon with a surprising invitation. It feels like stuff for beginners, but I'd venture to say that without it, you can't really be strong in the Lord. Without it, you can't stand. Without it, you can't really put on the armor. Without it, you will not last in the fight. Without it, you'll lose your first love. It's in the text and it's on the screen. Let's read it together. Verse 18, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Paul ends this letter by inviting the church into a life of prayer. And maybe that's not an accident. Prayer may just be the first work. The people who followed Jesus first were all taken back by Jesus' prayer life. They were fascinated by it. Jesus woke up early to pray. When he was exhausted, he'd get alone to pray. When he was successful, he'd get away to pray. When he was in trial, he stayed up all night to pray. It's as if the first work and the last work that Jesus was up to was always prayer. Our rabbi lived something that's so easy to forget. Prayer, more than anything else, fuels our love for God, his people, and his mission in the world. It's how everything Paul has talked about is made possible. Prayer is how we stand. It's how we get strengthened in the Lord. It's how we stay grounded in truth and remember our salvation. It's how we're kept in peace. It's how we stay in the stars and in the dirt. It's how justice is fueled and how reconciliation happens. Prayer is how we begin to put off the old humanity. It's how we release control, reorder the idols of our heart, and starve out self-absorption. Prayer is how we grow in gratitude. It's how we learn to receive God's voice and trust him. It's how we experience his love, and it's how we stay in it when we're not feeling close to God. It's how we don't get overwhelmed by problems with the church. It's how we begin to submit to one another, how we learn to encourage one another, and how we stay bonded in unity. Prayer is how we live out our vocation. It's how we parent our children and show up for those around us. It's how we do our work best and how we carry the burden lightly. Prayer is how the kingdom of God advances. It's how lives are changed and how chains break and how we keep on loving our city over the longevity of our lives. Prayer is how we stay seated with Christ. It's how we, rem re we remember who the real enemy is. It's how we stand against his attacks. Prayer is how we keep perspective. It's how we don't lose heart and how we sustain in suffering. It's how God meets us in disappointment and how we learn to navigate grief, loss, and change. Prayer is the weapon we can use anywhere and about anything. It's what God rescues us for and what every occasion is for. It's what Jesus was all about and it's the house we're being built into, which is why prayer is what Paul goes back to over and over and over. Verse 18, with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying. Paul links alertness with prayer. Alertness with prayer. 
To the church in Colossae, he said, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. To the disciples during their trial, Jesus said to watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. To persecuted Christians living in Asia Minor, which, which would have likely included the Ephesians, Peter said to be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. And he said, be alert and of sober mind. The same phrase, twice. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. It's a trap for followers of Jesus in every age, time, and place to fall asleep at the post, which makes sense of why Paul tells other followers of Jesus to put on armor in 1 Thessalonians 5 or Romans 13. He tells them to stay awake and be alert because it's possible for us to fall asleep, to no longer stand, to lose our first love. And that's why we need to become a house of prayer. Prayer is how we stay alert. The ending of Paul's sermon to the Ephesians is simply this, pray. Wait, you did all of this sermon, all of this time, all of these weeks just to tell us to pray? Yep. Yeah, I did. I'm telling you that prayer has to become everything. But I'm not telling you this as the person who's like best at prayer, whatever that even really means. I'm telling you from what I'm still relearning. Like in so many seasons of my life, I've just gotten it twisted. I can get distracted and fall asleep at the wheel. Other things creep in and they seem more impactful than prayer, more important than prayer. I feel like I can do things in my own ability or with my own methods and my means. Prayer seems like a basic thing sometimes that I can master and then build from. But Jesus and his people are teaching me that in the kingdom, prayer is everything. We say this as a staff every week. Prayer is not just the way, it's a destination. It seems like every few months I have to repent, honestly, and just come back to this. And every time I do, I realize that prayer is what I've been after all along. Prayer is actually the ache in my soul. Prayer is actually the answer to every cry. Prayer is what I need and you need and we need and the city needs. So today, let me tell you as someone who has found some water but sometimes wanders from the well, prayer is actually what you're longing for. Did you notice how all throughout Ephesians, Paul keeps getting distracted from talking and he just starts praying? It's what I like to call reflex prayer. It's a posture and a practice I'm actually trying to grow in myself. I'm working to become the sort of man who prayer is my reflex for everything. When I'm anxious, excited, frustrated, confused, or anything else, I pray. I want to be that sort of person who talking with God about everything and just asking him because I'm crazy enough to believe that he cares and actually will act. That's the sort of man I want to be. That's the reflex that I want to have in my heart. Paul interrupts his own instructions to the church in order to pray for the church. He has learned that even more than a sermon, this church needs prayer. He knows what we forget. Prayer is not the way. It's the destination. So Paul ends his letter to the church by instructing them them to pray and keep on praying for two things in particular. Verse 18, with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. First, pray for God's people. Basically, every time Paul writes to a community, he tells them that he's praying for them whenever they come to mind. He is always praying for people by name. And while that sounds beautiful and noble, remember that Paul had a number of issues with these people and with these communities, and yet he still prayed for them. Maybe that's because prayer is a place where we grow in compassion. 
Prayer is the place where we realize that people aren't actually the enemy. Prayer is where we not only foster our love for God, but also our love for people. And in prayer, God enlarges our heart. He enlarges our heart for people's brokenness, for their pain, and even for their immaturity. A community who prays for one another grows in compassion for each other, which also creates a community where we have the safety to apologize and confess sin. So, pray for people. Keep a prayer list. I like the app Echo to keep track of prayer requests. It's like one of my favorite things when like, I ask somebody, hey, how's this thing going? And then I get to click the answered button. Like, oh, it just feels good. God answered another one. Another one. <laughs> pray that people will stand firm. Pray for people during hardship. Pray when there is conflict. Like instead of hearing something and feeling upset or being sad or turning the conflict into gossip, turn what you hear into prayer. Pray against the attacks of the enemy. I've been learning this from Yinka. Watching her prayer life has been a real, a, a real time, like an in real time reminder that the real problem is the enemy and I need to pray against the enemy's work in people's lives. I think of several of the women in our church who model covering our community in prayer. Women like Galile, and Jenny, and Stephanie, and Dr. D, Christiana, Laura, and so many others. They remind us that our first work and our last work is to pray. Paul says, pray for God's people, and then second, he says, pray for him. Which, I'm gonna take this somewhere that you may not like. Pray for church leaders. Eugene Peterson has so much good to say on this, so I'm just gonna quote him. Twice, Paul says, pray also for me. Paul is not more self-sufficient than are the Ephesians. Paul is not at all reluctant to ask others for help. Many of us would much prefer to be in a position to only help others, to pray for them instead of asking them to pray for us. Asking for help is an admission that we are not adequate for the task at hand. Asking for help reveals weakness. He later says, asking for prayer keeps us all on the same level. When we ask for prayer, we are, we are companions in the pilgrimage of the, of the pilgrim life of church. Asking for prayer also keeps prayer immediate, relationally personal and local and honest. Of all forms of language, prayer is most vulnerable to cliche. A cliche is a word or phrase that can literally be both accurate and true, but the personal, relational meaning has leaked out. This is a huge irony. The language of prayer is the most personal, intimate way of speaking and listening to God and with our neighbors that we have, but also in some ways the most demanding. For it requires us to be present, attentive there. When the words of prayer are removed from personal, whether with God or with another person, there is no prayer. A cliche prayer is no prayer. The words, make a vo- the words mask a void, but this is less likely to take place when we expose our needs to others and ask, pray also for me. Lastly, he said, every time we ask someone, pray also for me, the church becomes stronger and more mature we grow. Now, I know it can seem self-serving for me as a pastor to say, pray for leaders in the church, but the truth is, we actually really need your prayers. Like, we can't do what we do without your prayers. I know we aren't in chains like Paul, but we do go through forms of spiritual attack. We need your prayers, but not only do we need you to pray for us, I think you need to pray for us. Like, you need this too. Prayer is the place where I've learned to grow in compassion for church leaders who are just wounded healers. Prayer is a place that I'm reminded that leaders are humans too. Prayer helps keep our hearts soft. So to those who already pray for church leaders, thank you. And for those who don't, 
just consider starting. I can tell you that I've had moments where I could actually, actually feel, I could feel that someone was praying for me. And I know those prayers have protected me and they've impacted my life. Paul asked the church to be persistent in praying for one another and for him because they together are the family of God. They are the new temple. They are the new humanity. Their life and well-being is caught up in one another, which is why Paul sends Tychicus. Verse 21, Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Paul sends Tychicus to update the community on what's happening in his life. This teaches me that the church is more than just being a mission or on a mission in a city. It's about being a new sort of humanity, a new family, a family who loves and knows and encourages one another, family who prays for one another by name. Throughout his letters, Paul mentions roughly 80 different people by name. 80 different faces and stories and mountains and valleys. Paul knows and prays for people by name. He proactively journeys with sisters and brothers in the faith. And in the same way, so should we. So who is your Tychicus? Like, who are you talking with and journeying with and praying for and encouraging? N.T. Wright put it this way. Church is the gift of a community of Christians in which we rehearse and reorient ourselves in the practice of resurrection. It is never an abstraction, never anonymous, never a problem to be fixed, never a romantic ideal to be fantasized. The rehearsal and orientation take place in, a various, way, in various ways, but never apart from conversations between God, who reveals himself in Jesus and in named men and women. Take a kiss for a start. There is more to the church than sermons and sacraments, theology and liturgy, Bible studies and prayer meetings, committee minutes and mission statements. There are names, meals, small talk, births, deaths. There is us. Conversation is the form that language takes when the person of the Trinity and the persons of the congregation are in the same room. The everything that Tychicus will have to say to the Ephesians is no insignificant part of what it means to be the church, and you and I are Tychicus. Tychicus is the best way to end this letter because he reminds us of what it means to be the new family of God, a people praying together and journeying together, people like Jesus and a people like Jesus. That's who we are, and that's who we're becoming. So fam, I want to commend you and us for who we've become over the last decade of our church. It's remarkable. It actually is. And I think, honestly, though, we're just getting started. Like, what if everything that's happened so far is just the plane barely getting off the tarmac? I think there's more that God wants to do, more heaven to meet Portland, more strangers to become family, more healing and wholeness available. There's more for me and for you and more for our city. He's a God who always has more because he's just that loving and good. So may we become all who God is making us to be. May we not just have a good start, but may we stand for the long haul. Verse 23 and 24. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God. Actually, would you receive this as a prayer with your hands open? Peace to the brothers and sisters, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love.